notice on the screen there, it's going to be a little bit different. This is going to be a responsive reading, and I'll, I'll do verse 6, you'll do verse 7, and I'll give those instructions now with my eyesight, but once I start reading, I have to look at this because I can't read it off the screen. So, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Dan. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. As you can tell by the temperature of the air, it's getting colder and crisper in the mornings. That means fall is upon us, which means, good news, pumpkin spice sermons are back. <laughs> Nobody gets that joke. The funniest one of those I ever saw was uh, there was a mechanic shop in Waldo, I think, that, that, that had a sign out in front of it about this time of year that said, pumpkin spice oil changes are back. <laughs> I love it. Well, we're nearing the end of 1 Peter. Uh, in fact, uh, next Sunday, Pastor Aaron will wrap it up. And, um, and, and so... What we see today is very interesting. One of the things that you may or may not know about me, because I, I don't, I maybe not don't look this way, but I, I do like to work on things with my hands, and I'm a big fan of tools. Uh, tools, uh, I, I especially like uh, tools that work well. So if you come to my garage and you go out there and you look around at what's on the wall or in my toolbox, you're not going to see a lot of fancy tools with uh, big fancy names, but you're going to find the tools that work, uh, the tools that hold together under pressure and things like that. And um, uh, I, I just like to work on things. The other day, my son and I, we, we changed a strut in the front uh, passenger side of his car, and it, we had the right tool, so it was pretty easy to do. But, the, but recently, uh, I was helping my son work on something else. It was a Ford engine, and uh, the water pump went out. And um, so I was helping him with that, and, and everything was going swimmingly. We had all the right tools, and we were just going, going right along. And then we got to a certain place where we had to take off this, this um, pulley. And the, the pulley had, had grown very smooth and slick over the course. It, it was the pulley that was attached to the water pump. And it, was, it had grown very smooth and slick because the belt rubs up against it and everything like that. And uh, it was like that big around, and I didn't have a pair of pliers big enough to get on it. I didn't have a, a pipe wrench big enough to get on it. I didn't have anything. And I had to hold that thing very tightly to get off this uh, nut to remove it and, and proceed with the repair. And I didn't have it. I, and I tried all kinds of things, because the last thing that I want to do is go to the store and have to buy a new tool. I want to use the tools I have, right? They're tried, they're true, whatever. Well, it, after a couple of 
couple of attempts to get this pulley off, I finally went to the store and I had to buy this very fancy pair of, of channel locks that has a chain on it. So you wrap the chain around the pulley, you clamp it down, and then you can then you can hold it while you turn it. And it worked. Like two seconds after I got that thing clamped on there, uh, which took some finagling, but as soon as I got that thing clamped on there and I put the, the wrench on to take the nut off, it came right off. And then within minutes, the repair was done and we were back on, on our way. It shows the value of having not just tools, but the right tools. And in, in this last, in this last, I guess, major section of the book of First Peter, before he gets into the greetings and all this kinds of stuff, um, Peter's going to give us some tools. And uh, I, I want us to pay some attention to them this morning. So the big question that we're going to be wrestling with is this. What practices, or another way of saying it, what tools can we put in place to navigate this life well, even when suffering for Christ comes? I think there's four of them in this text, and they're really set off by, you know, if you want to get all English grammar, they're set off by the imperative verbs in the, um, in the text. What are imperative verbs? They're commands. So the first, what is the first tool that we should put into our lives to prepare for when suffering comes? The tool number one is humility. Humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, when we, take, when we tend to think of humility, we tend to think of it as this. Not thinking too highly of yourself. That's what we, is that, would everybody agree that's a pretty common definition of humility? Not thinking too highly of yourself. However, I want to invite you to look at the text before us this morning in verses six and seven and see the evidence of, see if, if your definition of humility is not thinking too highly of yourself, we might have this a bit wrong. Let's open our minds to the possibility that in our Western culture, where for many years, uh, centuries maybe, uh, decades, but, but recently things have shifted. Uh, in Western culture, the church has been respected for, for a very long time before now. And the major trap that Christians fell into or had to contend with was the temptation to think too highly of themselves. Because Christianity was something that was respected by much of society and much of this culture. That was our temptation. Our temptation was to think too highly of ourselves. However, there, are, there have been periods of time, and I believe we're either in one or we're approaching one rapidly, periods of time where Christianity is not in favor in the culture. When we are in the minority, for example, in Peter's day, that was the case. And I would argue that in our day, then perhaps we, we maybe misunderstand. Perhaps we, are, we ought not to think about humility in the way that I described earlier, not thinking too highly of yourselves. Here's a definition that I think would be perhaps more true to the text. And I'll show you from the text why I believe that. Humility is accepting life as God describes it, not as we are tempted to understand it according to human wisdom. Humility is accepting life as God describes it. So I, just look at the text. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, there's a therefore there, and we're going to come to that in a minute. Like, like, whenever there's a therefore, you got to ask yourself why it's there. So we'll get to that in a second. But 
But let me just, let's look at the text. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There seems to be something going on in this text that's kind of like at two ends of a spectrum. One is, one is talking about exaltation and one is talking about anxiety and fear. You see that? So, what is he talking about? Well, first of all, let, let's, let's talk about this. What comes from that? You know, there's this phrase in here, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So we gotta ask ourselves the question, what comes from the hand of God? What comes from the hand of God? Well, lots of things, right? We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit of God that indwells Christians. We have each other. We have the, the body of Christ, the people of God. Um, you know, we have lots of things. God's given us life and breath and lots. We have lots of different things that God has given us. And in, in all of the things that have been given us under the hand of God, that we, we need to understand something. God gives us good things, but he also allows in our lives difficult things, right? Does anybody want to dispute that this morning? God, something, God gives us good things. Uh, James 1.17 says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Wonderful stuff. God gives us so many good things. Our Again, I've just enumerated some of them. But, I mean, we could go on and on making lists of, you know, in, in this country, we have good food to eat. Uh, not just food that maybe sustains our lives, but food that tastes good, which is kind of a double blessing, right? Um, we have so many good things in this life. And so God gives us good things, and he also gives us difficult things. Uh, James 1, back to James, James 1, 2, and 4 says, that, 2 to 4 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, knowing or, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, not just does God allow trials in our lives, but there seems to be a purpose in them. He's refining us, he's testing us, he's, as Peter talked about earlier, he's you know, refining us like pure gold, right? Now, lest we think that God perpetrates evil in our lives, James, back to James, James 1.13 clearly says that's not true. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Nobody is saying, nobody is saying that God is putting, is, uh, you know, doing evil in our lives, but what God does is he allows things to happen in our lives as part of his sovereign plan. Again, what is God's big picture? What is God's main objective? He desires that all men are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We in our sinful and wandering hearts will sometimes like sheep wander away from him and he may allow a trial in our lives to, to, to steer us back to him. And so what we see in our lives under the mighty hand of God is this, that, with, that under the mighty hand of God, I say this all the time, God gives us the perfect recipe, even better than the 11 herbs and spices of the kernel. He gives us the perfect recipe, recipe of blessings 
and allowed trials in our lives to do what? To, to make us like Jesus. It's amazing. And because we know that's true, because that all happens under the hand of God, we are to humble ourselves. In other words, we are to accept life the way that God describes it and not the way that we're tempted to understand it according to human wisdom. And there's a lot of human wisdom out there that's trying to get us to understand life differently than God has described it in his word. So, let's look at the other phrases. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at a proper time he may exalt you. Notice, notice what it says there. God, what's God going to do? He's going to exalt us. But when is he going to exalt us? At the proper time. I think that's the word kairos, appointed time or season. What's, when is he going to do that? He's going to do it at the proper time. Is now the proper time? Probably not. When is the proper time? I don't know, but if we do experience any exaltation on this earth, uh, then that's a bonus, but we're, we're for sure going to be exalted uh, when we get to heaven. But a prideful, what's the opposite of humility? A prideful person. A prideful person wants to be exalted now, right? A prideful person wants to be exalted now. Do you know why a lot of false teachers that are in the church today, why uh, a lot of false teachers have success? Because they preach a doctrine of Follow God and you will be exalted now. Now. Follow God and your, your, your life is gonna get better. Your marriage is gonna get better. Uh, uh, you're gonna be good looking and have wonderful teeth and great hair. Just follow God. And he's gonna, he's gonna bring you up the ladder at your company. He's gonna, he's gonna give you wealth, wealth and health. But that's not what the scripture says. It says... <clears throat> Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time. I don't know when that is. Certainly, it's when we get to heaven, right? But at the proper time, he may exalt you. You know, I've seen and, and been inside many beautiful church buildings. I've heard arguments that in order to properly honor God, we must spend exceedingly great, great amounts of money to hire the greatest artists and architects and build wonderful and ornate structures. Why? Well, they would argue, for God's glory, of course. For God's glory, we must build these wonderful things so that the world may see who God is. And I would challenge anyone to think this. Where in God's word does it say, But it's not the Old Testament, not the Old Testament temple. But where in the New Testament are we told to build a house for God, a beautiful ornate house to display his glory to the nations? And the answer is nowhere. Why? Wait, check this out. We're going to get, after we get through the next series, we're going to go through a series on stewardship and we're going to talk about uh, building a new building and all this kind of stuff or in addition to this building. Um, but, but once we get through all that, we're going to get into the book of Acts and in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament, what we're going to learn is so thrilling, it's so mind-bending, it's this. The new temple 
where God, you know, in the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle, then you had the temple, and that's where the Shekinah glory was there. That's where God, his presence took up residence among his people, and, and it was just this really cool thing. And, and in the New Testament, in the book of Acts and other places, we learn this, that God has taken up residence, but he hasn't taken up residence in a physical structure, right? Where has God taken up residence? Okay, look to your right. Look to your left, and if the person to your right and the person to your left is a Christian, then they are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what the Bible says. First Corinthians says it twice. Alone. Forget about the book of Acts. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, it is good to have a building to gather in. This is a tool, folks. This is a tool. But if this, if this building burns down tomorrow... Is God less glorified? No, because how should he be glorified? Take these churches, these ornate buildings that, that millions and millions of dollars have been spent to construct, and then look at the lives of the people inside and tell me if God is glorified because that's the true test. Amen? Instead of focusing on glorifying God by building him an ornate building... Let's glorify God by humbly beautifying his true temple, which is our lives. And how do we do that? By viewing life the way he has told us, by avoiding that which he says is evil, by embracing that which he says is good, and in doing this, he will be glorified. It may be in doing so that we might rise among the ranks of other men to a place of exaltation like a Nehemiah or an Esther or a Daniel or so on. However, we should content ourselves with the reality that we will be exalted at the right time as he determines what that is. Okay, so prideful people want to be exalted right now but there's a, there's a flip side to this, right? There's a flip side to this in these verses. What's it say? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Prideful people want to be exalted now, but also prideful people want to be able to handle everything themselves. Now, this is, not a common, this is not a common understanding, but I think if, if you see it, when you see it in the text, you'll get it, right? Prideful people want to handle everything themselves, and so they allow themselves to fall into anxiety. How do, how do we fall into anxiety? It's, it's easy, right? We don't know the future. We talk about this a lot, right? There's God's, there's God's sovereign plan, right, and his uh, His. his his revealed will and his sovereign will, right? His revealed will is given to us in his word, the Bible. And so we know what we are, ought to be doing and what we ought not to be doing. We also know roughly how this, this whole thing is gonna end. But how precisely that's gonna unfold today or tomorrow in your life, in my life, we don't know. And so in the not knowing, we're tempted to not trust. In the not knowing, we're tempted to try to take control for ourselves. In the not knowing, we're tempted to worry and fear what is to come. You see it? That's pride. It's a form of it anyway. 
When trials come, we may be tempted to believe that God is not in control. We may be tempted to believe that he's forgotten us. We may be tempted to believe that he does not care. You know, the prophet, the, the prophet Elijah had this problem. The prophet Elijah, who had just called down fire from heaven upon the prophets of Baal, upon the altar, and shown all the prophets of Baal that God was the only true God, Baal was no God, and then slaughtered the prophets of Baal. After this tremendous victory, Jezebel, the king's wife, issued a death warrant on him, and he fled deep, deep, deep into the wilderness. And he actually said this to God. On the heels of that victory, on the heels of that tremendous thing that God had just accomplished through him, on the heels of that, he actually mouthed these words to God. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, Elijah was a great man. I'm not claiming to be anything, I'm not claiming to be anything compared to him. But this text makes it clear, in order to operate our lives in humility, we must have the proper estimate of ourselves. We should not seek to exalt ourselves, neither should we choose to view ourselves as a person that God doesn't love and care for. Folks, God loves you so much. His word tells us very clearly, John 3, 16, and many other places, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And not just die in a, in a painless sort of, sterile way, lethal injection or something like that, to die a humiliating, torturous death for the whole public to see. Why? Because that's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares that your sins are paid for so that you and you can be with him forever. That's how much he loves you. So in humility, don't walk around this earth. <laughs> this sounds counterintuitive, but it probably is to our modern ears. Don't walk around this earth pridefully thinking that he doesn't. In humility, consider yourselves so loved by God that he sent his son. And so when the temptation to fear and to, to cower and to run away from trouble or trials comes, in humility, practice the rest of these tools. Now, before I move on to the next point, let me just say this. Uh, the therefore, it says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Why is the therefore therefore? Well, in, at the end of the last passage, we just read it, right? Why? Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Grace is right? It's getting what you don't deserve. It's getting like a gift. You don't deserve it, but you're, you receive it anyway. And so do you want to live in such a way where God resists you, or do you want to live in such a way that God gives you things that you don't deserve? And so if, if that's what you want, then the first tool must be incorporated into your life, and that is the tool of humility. Humble yourselves. Have a biblical understanding of your identity that is in line with what God's word has said. Don't think too highly of yourselves, but don't think that you're nothing because you're not. 
And you say, well, I, I may have sinned. I, 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 may, I may have sinned egregiously. I may have done something that's horrible, terrible. And, and, what, and, and you've confessed that sin. You've turned away from that sin. God loves you. And he can still use you in great and powerful ways. All right, the second tool is sober-mindedness. Verse eight says, be, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What is sober-mindedness? Well, one only need to think of the opposite of it to write to understand it. Uh, Drunk-mindedness, right? <laughs> what, what, would, what would intoxicated-mindedness look like? Uh, you don't think straight, right? You, you don't, you're not careful with your words. You're not careful with your thoughts. And, and maybe you've formulated thoughts that don't even make sense when, when put next to each other. It, it, sober-mindedness has the idea of being level-headed, of being clear-headed, of, being, of having things well thought out. And folks, I don't know, I don't know how to help you be any more sober-minded than just to recommend to you once again that you spend meaningful time on a regular basis in God's word, in study and meditation. There's a book, I've brought this book out before, uh, The Preacher and His Models by James Stalker, who is a, uh, who's a dead guy from Scotland. And he was giving a uh, ordination charge to some of his... Uh, students as they were getting ready to go out into the ministry. Let me just read you a page or two, a page or two of this uh, text. So again, he's, this is a man talking to men that are about to enter into the ministry. He says, the man's self, the very thing that he is, standing with his bare feet on the bare earth, this is, this, this is the great concern. This is the self to which you are to take heed. What you, are really, what you really are, what you are growing to, what you may yet become. All our work is determined by this, the spirit and power of our preaching, the quality of the influence we exert, the tenor of our walk and conversation. We can no more rise above ourselves than water can rise above its own level. We may indeed often fail to do ourselves justice and sometimes may do ourselves more than justice. But that is only for a moment. The total impression made by ourselves is an unmistakable thing. What is in us must come out and nothing else. All we say and do is merely an expression of what we are. Evidently, therefore, there can be nothing so important as to carefully watch over our inner life and see that it be large, sweet, and spiritual and that it be growing. Yet the temptation to neglect and overlook this and turn our attention in other directions are terribly strong. The ministerial life is a very outside life. It is lived in the glare of publicity. It is always pouring out. We are continually preaching, addressing meetings, giving private counsel, attending public gatherings, going from home, frequenting church courts, receiving visits, and occupied with details of every kind. We live in a time when all men are busy and ministers are the busiest of men. From Monday till, till Sunday night, go, the bustle goes on continually. Our life is in danger of becoming all outside. 
We are called upon to express ourselves before conviction has had time to ripen. Our spirit gets too hot and unsettled to allow the dew to fall on them. We are compelled to speak what is merely the recollection of convictions that we had some time ago and used to feel and use past feelings over again. Many a day you will feel this. You will long to go with your whole heart to escape away somewhere into obscurity and be able to keep your mouth closed for weeks. You will know the meaning of the great text for ministers. The talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. That is, it shallows the spirit within. This is what we have to fight against. The people we live among and the hundred of details of our calling will steal away our inner life altogether if they can. And then, what is our outer life worth? It is worth nothing. If the inner life gets thin and shallow, the outer life becomes a perfunctory discharge of our duties. Our preaching will be empty and our conversations and intercourse unspiritual, unenriching, and flavorless. We may please our people for a time by doing all that they desire and being at everybody's call, but they will turn around on us in disappointment and anger in the day when we, living merely by the outer life, have become empty, shallow, and unprofitable. Take heed to thyself. If we grow strong and large inwardly, our people will reap the fruit of it in due time. Our preaching will have sap, find time for reading, for study, for meditation and prayer. He goes on to describe what that looks like in his life. These hours of quietness. Now listen, this is the, this is the sentence I wanted to get to. These hours of quietness are our real life. Peter's giving us some tools here, folks. And one of the tools that he's giving us to navigate this life when all the trouble and the trials comes is this, sober-mindedness. And I can't, I can't help you get to sober-mindedness if you don't understand that studying the word of God and incorporating it into your life is, is your whole life. It, it informs everything else that you do. If you're sitting in this congregation today and you have no plan on what you're going to do this week, what time you're going to arise, or what point in the day you're going to set aside to give that time to the study and meditation of the Word of God, get that plan. It's one of the best tools I can tell you about today. It's the tool that when you go to use it, it works. So, sober-mindedness, study the Word of God. As you do that, what you'll find and we're going to talk about this more in detail as we go, as we go. And I, I know I got to go fast, but we're not given to emotion. We're going to talk about that. I think that's coming in the text and we're not given to delay. What do I mean by that? It says your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about here in a minute, what do you do when a lion comes into your life and is trying to devour you? Well, you, you can't give yourself over to emotion and you can't give yourself over to delay. There's a happy medium in there somewhere and we're going to talk about it in a second. Just want to remind you what 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says. This is, this is just, just a basic text that I think we all need to probably have committed to memory. It says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of, every, is of value in every way as it holds the promise for this present life and also for the one to come. 
That word train yourselves is the word gymnazo, right? It's where we get the word gymnasium. It's a training center. We are to train ourselves to be sober-minded. Okay, I think I made my point. The next tool that we have is vigilance. This is the other imperative verb in verse eight. It says be sober-minded, but it also says be watchful. Be watchful. Um, and here all I wanna say is this, is that this is, the, this is as, you, as you study the word of God and you're sober-minded and you see how Satan attacks, you see the tactics that he uses to tempt and draw your heart away, then you've got to sit and ask yourself the question, where are you vulnerable to attack, right? We see how David was tempted, right? We see how uh, lots of other folks, you know, uh, Judas, we see how Judas was tempted. And as you see these men in the Bible and women uh, falling into sin, ask yourself the question, what enticed them away? And am I vulnerable to that same kind of attack? And what am I going to do about it? How am I going to be vigilant against that? Uh, what distractions are being leveraged against you? Uh, Stalker in his book mentioned one, and that's one that I hear a lot from folks, which is, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to give time to Bible study, to prayer. I'm too busy to serve in the church. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. That's a distraction. It's taking all your time away. It's, it's the evil one coming into your life and saying, I'm going to fill your life up with all these things, some of which are going to be good things, but, but a lot of them are going to be just things that need to be done, and it's going to distract you away from what I said earlier, your real life, your spiritual life, your relationship with God. And then, you know, ask yourself this question, are you being faithful in the little things? You know, oftentimes when I counsel people and they're having lots and lots of problems, I, I got to start sometimes with the little things. Are you sleeping? Yes, I'm sleeping. Are you sleeping, you know, at, are you going to bed at the same time roughly every night? Are you getting up at the same time roughly every night? And are you getting, you know, depending on your age, the, the amount of sleep that you need? And I find that oftentimes people aren't faithful in the little things and, that leads to a lack of getting things done with the big things. So, again, church attendance, Bible study, prayer, serving the Lord with the talents that he's given you, all these little things, how are you doing? You gotta be vigilant, right? It, what happened in Genesis 3? Genesis 3, Adam was given a command by God only one command, you can eat of whatever tree you want. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's Adam. I'm, I'm going to play the role of Adam, fully clothed. Uh, I'm Adam, and I'm over here watching Eve, who is having a dialogue with a serpent and holding maybe in her hand a piece of the fruit that she is forbidden to eat. And what am I doing over here? I'm being passive. I'm not stopping it, and I'm not saying, listen, don't listen to this snake God has spoken. He was not vigilant. He was not watchful. So be watchful over your lives. Keep an eye on the content that you're putting into your brain, whether that be TV or internet or, or whatever. As I've, as I've stated earlier, uh, I love this phrase by <clears throat> a guy named Burn Power, 
who says that we are now currently living in a fictitious propaganda panorama, meaning we live in a time where most of the news that we're getting is fake. It's driven by an agenda. There are key details left out to make us think or act in a certain way that someone wants us to think or act. I am so happy. I am so happy to be a, a, a preacher of God's word at this particular time, because at this particular time, I can point you back to the source of truth that never changes, that is not propaganda. But we gotta be careful about the things that we let come into our brains and, the, and consider the sources that are, that are generating these things. Be watchful. All right, here's the fourth and final tool, resistance, right? Resistance. Look at verses 9 through 11. Resist him, it says, firm in, the, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world, right? That, that's a very, it's a very sobering thing to know that, but it's also a very encouraging thing that whatever, whatever nasty thing, whatever bad thing is happening to you is not just happening to you, right? It's happening to your brethren around the world. After you have suffered a little while, God, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, well, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Resistance. Okay, I'm going to throw a couple thoughts up on the screen, and then we're going to turn in the Bible. So we are not to get sinfully angry, and we are not to fall into fear. Let's I want to look at Daniel chapter 6. Okay, so here's the thought. My thinking is this. In verse 8, where it says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I know that Peter is making an analogy, or he's, he's, he's using a simile to, to say what Satan is like. He's like a lion. Satan's not a lion. He's like a lion. Uh, you know, a ferocious lion, big teeth with a, with a horrendous roar coming into your life, intimidating you. It's a large beast coming into your life to intimidate you and to threaten you, right? Perhaps even to devour you. And so I, I started to think about other places in God's word where godly men or whoever, people, um, encounter lions. So turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 6, just for a minute. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius, this is verse one, to set up over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over, the, over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps and became excellent and, and an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel. So there's, there's a, this is what we call politics. Do we not see this today every day? Somebody is rising and they're, 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 they're excellent at what they do. They've got, they've got the right motives and they're rising above the ranks and the other guys don't like that. So what do they do? They figure out a way to dig up dirt. Satraps sought to find a ground to complain against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the laws of the law of his God. 
Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom of the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he has done previously. He was already doing these things. This was not a new thing that he picked up because this law went into place. He just was going through his normal routine. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before God. They came near, said to the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that everyone who makes petition to do any good uh, to any God or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. So he probably called his lawyers and said, how do I get Daniel off? He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded that Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went and hasted the den of lions. He came near to the den where Daniel was and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lions' mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. You can read on yourself to figure out what happened to the high officials that, um, that uh, perpetrated this political act against Daniel. Here's what I'm trying to say by reading this. Daniel had to be sober-minded. He had to remind himself of the following realities. God is God, and he's in control. He put me here on this earth, and he has told me in his word that I am to pray to him and to him alone. And I have been praying to him and to him alone. And just because this man-made law, which means nothing to God, 
has come into my life under threat of my own death, I am 100% confident that what God says is right and what this man says, though he be manipulated by these other evil officials, what this man has put into place is wrong. And so under threat of my own life, which by the way is in God's hands anyway, I'm gonna do what God has said. And it doesn't seem that David or that Daniel was all that emotional about it. On the other hand, it didn't seem that he was all that fearful about it. At least from the text, we don't know. At least from the text, the Bible doesn't say that Daniel was in great dread. The Bible also doesn't say that he was in great fear. It simply says he went to his house. He opened the windows as he always did. He prayed towards Jerusalem as he always did. There were consequences to those actions and he accepted them. Man, if this isn't a wonderful tool or a wonderful way to think about resistance, I don't know what is. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we also read the account of David who came into contact with lions. And and it says, oops, sorry. And it says uh, this, David said to Saul, this is, I think on the, on the, right before the attack of David and Goliath or the, uh, episode of that. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. Filled with humility, these men, David and Daniel, did what was right. They did, they were sober-minded, they were vigilant. They neither acted out of emotion or delay. And God used them. All right, I'm out of time. What are the benefits? There's, there's a few benefits, which I won't spend a lot of time on in verse 10, but here they are. Restoration. Uh, it says, after you have been suffered, after you've suffered a while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Side note, uh, for all the, those of you that are going to start studying your Bible again, <laughs> when you see a word list like that, that's a good thing to study, right? So rest- restoration, what does that mean? He's going to put you back into full working order. That's the promise. Whatever, whatever suffering you have to go through and whatever that costs you in terms of harm, God is going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. What does that mean? It means to cause to be inwardly firm or committed. You think that Daniel, walking out of that lion's den, turning around and seeing those high officials be cast in that, that, lion, that same lion's den with the same lions and them being their bones being crushed, do you think that Daniel walked away from that episode with less confidence in God or more confidence in God? I'm going to say more. I'm going to say more. And that's the experience that we will have if we will use these tools. We will be restored. We will be confirmed. We will be strengthened. That's pretty obvious what that means. We'll, we will have more strength to go through different kinds of trials, maybe even heavier trials that are coming and then establishing. What does that mean? It means to set your feet on a firm foundation. Again, I said it earlier, there's so much propaganda out in our world today. There's so many people that aim to to get us to do what they want us to do by telling us things that aren't true. Where do you set your feet? You set your feet squarely on the word of God. 
on what he has said. And your footsteps will be firm. The answer to the question this morning is this. These practices, the practices that God has given us are clear, right? Humility, sober-mindedness, vigilance, and um, uh, resistance to the ways of Satan. These practices are given to us are so clear. The real question, and this is the only application question that I have today, is this. Will you pick up the tools that God has given you in 1 Peter and use them? Will you pick them up and incorporate them into your life? Now, what I do have today is a couple of interesting resources. This is a book. It's an old book. Okay, so listen, I, I don't recommend books that I don't think you can handle. I mean, I think you guys are smart, uh, but this is a book written by one of the Puritans. I think you can find it free online, but uh, you can also order it in print. And if you're going to order it in print, you might talk to me because there's some really bad versions of it out there, meaning they didn't edit it well. It's like they copied and pasted it off the internet and then published it. And they didn't do a lot of editing, but um, there's also a lot of good ones too. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks uh, is a great and wonderful tool to have in your library. In that book, all that Thomas Brooks does is he, goes, he proceeds to go through and say, these are all the ways that we're prone to be tempted. These are all the different ways Satan tries to trick us. These are the things that Satan does to try to get us to sin and here are some things that you can do to avoid that. Very practical. Now, if you want to get a little bit more literary, uh, I like the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, this, is, this is more like C.S. Lewis' meditation on how Satan may operate. And uh, although it's very creative, it's also, it also causes you to stop and think about the things that you allow in your life. There's a lion out there. He's trying to devour us, people. He's trying to destroy our lives or at least make our lives ineffective for the kingdom of God. And the way we respond to that lion is absolutely critical. We don't become overly emotional about that lion. We don't let our emotions take over and just cause us to go into fits and panic but we don't delay dealing with the lion either. We don't let fear and anxiety take hold and, and just say, you know, I'll deal with that another day, I'll deal with it another day, and that day never comes. We have to pick up these tools that God has given us and use them. Father, we thank you for the book of 1 Peter, for all that it has to enrich our lives and teach us. Father, May we be a people who are humble. We see life the way you see it. We think about our lives and how to operate them the way you tell us to. May we be watchful and sober-minded. May we not only know the word, but know it well enough so that when we see Satan attacking, we are alert enough to see it and avoid it. Or if, if it's coming and we can't avoid it, to deal with it your way. And then finally, uh, Father, may we be a people who resist Satan, who say no to his ways and yes to yours. Why? Why would we want to live this way? Because, Father, we recognize that it's the way that establishes us, that strengthens us, 
that is a witness to the world around us. And so, Father, we just ask for your help in doing these things and implementing these tools into our lives so that others might see our good works and give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.